Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the visions of heaven and hell of the 18th century Swedish scientist and mystic Emanuel Swedenborg. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Rose. He is the series editor and translator, researcher, and annotator for the New Century Edition, an ongoing project that incorporates the latest scholarship in modern, accessible English translations of Swedenborg's theological works. He holds a Master of Divinity degree in religion and a doctoral degree in Latin. He has focused his career and research on Swedenborg's life and works, and he is the author of The Message of Love Behind the Ten Commandments and Swedenborg's Garden of Theology. He also co-edited a lexicon to the Latin text of the theological writings of Emanuel Swedenborg. Dr. Rose is based in Middletown, Maryland, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's very nice to be with you. Let's begin by talking about who Emanuel Swedenborg is. I know I've discussed him in many previous programs, but I'm going to guess that half of our audience may not know about Swedenborg. He is someone worth knowing about. Uh, he was born in 1688, died in 1772, so that was a while ago now. In fact, just uh, last week at the time of this taping, we passed the 250th anniversary of his passing, um, which is interesting. So that, that's the time period in which he lived. And um, his claim to fame, if you will, is that he was a scientist. He was the son of a Lutheran bishop, so grew up in a, in a very Christian household, and, and uh, there were not many bishops in Sweden at that time. And so his father was very prominent in the country. And, um, and yet Swedenborg decided not to take up the family business and went instead into science, studied mineralogy and anatomy. And, and, um, and then in his mid-50s had a spiritual awakening, uh, really a series. It sort of rolled out over a five-year period as far as we can tell. But he had um, a vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, possibly two. Um, and he started to find it first of all came into his dreams, which is very interesting to me that his dreams, I think it's what we would call lucid dreaming. He calls it preternatural sleep, uh, meaning kind of supernatural or, or, um, unusual sleep. And, uh, in his dreams, uh, he started to feel that what was going on in his dreams was almost more real than what was going on in his daily waking state. And um, in time, this led to uh, then uh, visions in the night and finally kind of a third stage in which he was able to talk to people in the afterlife and even kind of have his own passport there, so to speak. In other words, he had a place to live and, and um, 
move around in that world and talk to people. And this dual consciousness condition uh, lasted, according to him, more or less daily for the remaining 27 years of his life. And he wrote and published 18 theological titles in 25 volumes, um, some 7,300 pages of material that he left behind, documenting both his experiences and also the insights that they gave him into Christianity, into religion, uh, even into the Bible and, and its meaning. So it's a fascinating body of work. And it is surprising that he's not better known. He's influenced a number of interesting people in our world over time, mostly thinkers and artists and so on. Um, but for some reason, he's still not exactly a household name. And frankly, I think he should be because it's an interesting claim. It, it's a, you know, and doesn't mean everybody has to accept it, but uh, people should at least know about it. He's, he's really one of the most unusual figures in all of human history, particularly because he wasn't just a scientist. He, he was a polymath. He made contributions to numerous different fields of science. This is very true. Uh, some people have said he was one of the last sort of Renaissance men. Um, uh, yes, uh, he didn't just know about engineering, but founded the, the science of crystallography, uh, made discoveries about the brain and, and so on. He had a very wide ranging um, knowledge. And um, in my role as an editor and translator of his works, he keeps me and the rest of our team very busy trying to chase down his references because he, what he knew, he, he wrote the first, um, published the first um, Swedish algebra. He wrote the first, published the first scientific journal in, in Sweden that was largely in Swedish or sometimes in Swedish and Latin facing pages. And um, so he's, to keep up with him is a challenge. It takes a whole team of people to, to try to match his, his knowledge base. Well, today we're going to focus on probably his most popular work on heaven and hell. And uh, one of the things about it that struck me right away and it sort of surprised me is that he maintained, and I think he would know having grown up in the household of a bishop, that most of the religious people in Sweden in the 18th century when he lived didn't really believe in an afterlife. Yes, it was an interesting time because you still had sort of a lingering sense of um, spirits or tomtons or, or what what have you. Uh, but the sophisticated people, it was the time of the Enlightenment, and uh, the, the thinkers and so on were becoming more and more uh, secularized, uh, uh, alienated from Christianity, and um, and not not truly believing, even if there was kind of um, uh, lip service to the idea of an afterlife, uh, didn't really believe it. And a lot of people thought uh, we're, you know, we, we die when we die. You know, that's all there is to it. We're just the flesh and, and that's it. 
Well, it's unusual. People ha say conventionally, uh, uh, those who don't accept the afterlife, nobody has come back to talk about it, is, is the phrase you hear. And, and of course, uh, Swedenborg would be a, a counterexample, but even more than that, these days we now have reports from thousands of individuals who have had near-death experiences. Would, would you say that Swedenborg's descriptions are commensurate with what we know from other sources? Uh, yes, it's a very interesting thing to compare. Uh, one of the things that he said in one of his first works after this spiritual awakening was that he was granted the experience of dying, and he records what it was like. Uh, in other words, so writing a near-death experience that, that he had. Uh, and it's very interesting to compare this with the, as you say, thousands of near-death experiences that have been uh, published um, now and, and whole societies devoted to the study of, of this phenomenon, um, uh, there are some features of near-death experiences that he uh, does not have in the, or doesn't express in the same way. Uh, he's a very systematic kind of thinker and, and a philosopher. And so he, he pr approaches it somewhat more clinically, kind of kind of describing the situation. So, for one example, he does not um, describe a tunnel of light per se. And I know this is not universal, but it is a common feature. Um, uh, but he does say that there's this tremendous attraction, this powerful force of attraction. It's something that I think some people worried about then and even now certain um, people who believe that the body must be whole for your transition to occur in the right way to the to the afterlife um, and they were you know that's why it's so dreadful when you, you bomb a building because trying to find all the, the pieces of the bodies is, is a terrible thing and, and grievous because of that belief he said there's a, just such a powerful attraction drawing the the spirit out of the out of the body is this a tunnel? Do some people experience it as a tunnel? I, I'm not sure, but but there are interesting things like that. He does not speak in a specific terms about a life review, but he certainly has the idea that the events of your life uh, will be a topic of your own uh, reflection and others uh, sort of looking at who you are. A lot of what's going on after we die, he says, is is to figure out who we are, what we love, what our concepts have been, and whether we want to upgrade to different concepts or stick with what we already believe. You know, how how firm are we in in what we think? Um, so you have elements that relate to a life review, but he doesn't have that specific element. But a lot of what he describes about the world of love, the tremendous love that you're greeted with, which is true of most people, as far as I understand it. In near-death experiences, also the um, kind of telepathic communication that goes on, um, the ability to move effortlessly through, through that other world, um, and being greeted by loved ones and family members. In some cases, people you didn't even know <laughs> existed, but but uh, seeing them, those are, are things that are in common. So there's enough in common that some of the leading near-death experience researchers, Raymond Moody and Kenneth Ring, um, 
uh, were very interested in what Swedenborg said and, and felt that this was an ancestor in a way to, to what they were doing. In the psychical research and parapsychology literature, the book, uh, to my understanding, that gives us the most detailed description of the afterlife was channeled in 1932 uh, to an automatic writer named Geraldine Cummins. The book was supposedly dictated by Frederick Myers, a great psychical researcher, the author of Human Personality and its Survival of Bodily Death. And this book was called The Road to Immortality. Myers had been dead for 30 years at that point, and it's, it's his description. And I found it, it, although the language is completely different, I found it very similar uh, to Swedenborg's account of the afterlife. And, and to begin with, Swedenborg, as I understand it, describes a, a realm that spirits enter uh, immediately upon death. And he, he refers to it, I believe, as the realm of spirits. He says it's neither heaven nor hell. That's right. That's right. And, and um, uh, it's interesting to sort of dial our minds back to that 18th century view, some, some of whose concepts are still with us in certain religious traditions, but the idea that the, you have graves, you don't get cremated because you need to have a grave because people will rise up out of their graves and they should face east because you'll await that day of judgment. And, and uh, so uh, a, a, another such concept is that angels are a separately created race. They're, they're genderless. And, and, um, and so for him to say, oh, no, uh, the passage is immediate. Death is merely a transition, uh, that you have the same personality and interests, and you take your memory with you and, and so on. Um, and immediately uh, transition was kind of a shock to a lot of people, <laughs> I think, even though the folk wisdom, I think, has always been, you know, when you've lost a loved one, you always like to think that when you're graduating or getting married or having children or something that they're looking down and they're kind of aware of what's going on. And Swedenborg says that, that some of that folk wisdom is, is more accurate about the afterlife than the, than the learned pontifications about, uh, you know, uh, the, the nature of the soul or, or whether it's floating around in some no man's land awaiting that day of the last judgment. I know. Isaac Newton, who was, uh, I think, a century or so ahead of Swedenborg, uh, was very interested in these topics. Uh, a lot of people don't know that Swedenborg had a deep, uh, I mean, Newton had a deep interest in alchemy, uh, amongst other things. But he wasn't uh, intrigued uh, the way Swedenborg was by the afterlife. He believed uh, that when you die, you, you sleep. You're essentially unconscious until the last judgment day. And I think that was a, a common religious belief in that era. That's right. I, I think so, too. I, I understand from a friend of mine who studied it that Newton wrote more about alchemy uh, than he did about uh, gravity or, or um, you know, what we would think of as, as um, mainstream science. There is a funny incident in, in which uh, apparently it... Uh, uh, Cambridge, where Newton was teaching, I think it was Trinity College, 
There, there was a poltergeist, and, and people were disturbed by all this noisy ghost activity. And uh, Newton was asked to investigate it, and he said, no, nah, it's, it's impossible because spirits are all asleep. Isn't that interesting? I had not heard that before. That, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, Swedenborg says at one point that uh, he had, he just mentions in an offhand way at one point in a published work that he had had thousands of conversations with people about their loved ones on the other side as if he was passing on messages. We don't know exactly what form this took, but that he was communicating with people about their loved ones and how they were doing. And he said, to date, no one had ever said to him, wait, aren't they sleeping in the ground waiting for the day of the last judgment? You know, everybody sort of intuitively senses that, of course, they're somewhere and they have opinions and thoughts and feelings and they still love the people that they loved and, uh, you know, care, care about people who are still in this world and so on. Let's go back to this realm uh, that Swedenborg describes, the realm of spirit. It's neither heaven nor hell. What goes on at that level? So Swedenborg describes heaven and hell as he, he's not a Manichaean with some god of good and a god of evil, uh, but he does believe in heaven and hell, and he believes that God is in charge of both. And how God manages that situation is to have hell, um, there's a kind of grand symmetry where the highest heaven is opposed by the lowest hell. There's a middle heaven that's opposed by the middle hell and the lowest heaven opposed by the highest hell. And in between the two is this area that he calls the world of spirits, which has um, a point of equilibrium and it's a place for people who have not yet made up their minds, in effect. Uh, one of his teachings is that uh, although the Bible may give you the idea that we are cast into, into hell or there's some judge on a throne who, you know, okay, down you go or you're all right. <laughs> you're with the stay, stay, stay with me. Um, Swedenborg says it's much more about an internal investigation of what what you really care about at a deep level, what's the most important thing to you. And sorting that out needs to take place in a place that's neither heaven or hell, because he makes the point, and again, the 18th century really believed that um, heaven was just a matter of getting in the door. If you had lived a really atrocious um, criminal life of cruelty and brutality, but at the last hour before you died, said, uh, I accept Jesus and I'm, I'm sorry about everything, that you could just walk into heaven. Swedenborg says that the, by the nature of what you love, if you love things, you know, if, if you're really, I'm talking about serious evil, but if you love torturing people, if that's the thing that lights you up the most, uh, you're going to have a great deal of difficulty breathing in the atmosphere of heaven where it's such a loving, compassionate atmosphere, you're just going to want to get out of there. And um, so people need to be prepared. And so basically most people go immediately to the world of spirits after they die, Swedenborg says, and are kind of processed there or they go, go through a process 
that has uh, two or three stages to it that I could describe and uh, that leads ultimately to people being ready to move on either to heaven or to hell, depending on how all, all that went. And he says that the amount of time that people spend there uh, varies, but the maximum, he says, is 30 years. And there's a, and even in later works, he says 20 years. Um, and it sounds like they were processing people more quickly, even over the time that he was alive. And, um, uh, and but he says that there are some people who are so pure, uh, either purely good or, or purely evil, that they pretty much get placed within an hour of, of dying. You know, they're completely ready to go to either place. But for the most part, uh, we, we're complex beings and we need a little sorting out and fi figuring ourselves out and other people figuring us out. As I recall, he also maintains that heaven and hell are vast. They have many, many communities, and the communities are all different, but, but that somehow they're matched, uh, not just the three levels, but even community by community. They're, they're sort of matched. And another intriguing thing I found is that he reports that in addition to earthly humans in heaven and hell, there are also beings from other planets. That's right. And this... I think in his day, there was a general philosophical acceptance of the possibility that these planets probably existed for something and may have people on them. But this was troubling to some Christian thinkers because, well, wait, Jesus wasn't born on that planet. So how are they saved and how does that work? And uh, Swedenborg claims that uh, very shortly after death, everybody finds out that there are people from a ton of different, he says, uh, myriads of myriads, I believe, which would be hundreds of millions or something like that. Anyway, he's got large numbers of how many planets are contributing people to this other world. He makes a point that's um, really moved me when I thought about it, uh, that at the highest, in the highest heaven, as you say, he has got three layers of heaven. And on the highest level, the highest heaven, which is all about love, um, uh, the, there's no difference between the, the planets. I can't help but picture the uh, famous bar scene in Star Wars or something where all these creatures are interacting with each other. And um, whereas in the spiritual heaven, which is a step down from that highest heaven and is more truth-oriented, uh, and, the, and the lowest heaven, which is more action-oriented, um, it's planet by planet. The differences are too great for angels at those levels that they, they just want to be with, with their, with their own. And, and the other, the others are, are a little too foreign. So I love that idea that when love rules your life, you, you see more similarity than, than difference. That's, that's fascinating. Now you've used the term angels and my understanding is that Swedenborg defines angels very differently than uh, probably most of our viewers understand the term. So let's talk about that. Yes, yes, that's an excellent point. And it's interesting to me that in his uh, most popular work, Heaven and Hell, that talks about this, he doesn't play this card until about halfway through the book. He doesn't lead with this at the beginning. But uh, you do find out in the course of the book and other books that he wrote 
that there's nobody else up there, he says, in heaven or in hell. He he rejects the idea that that there's one Satan or a devil who was a fallen angel, uh, the Lucifer concept, and and he rejects the idea that angels are a separately created genderless race of beings, um, sometimes depicted in movies as longing to come down and eat our food or to have sensual experiences like we get to have down here. He says, oh, no, they... They they're all just us after we died. You know, those are your ancestors. That's just people. Everybody who who ever lived on this or any other planet, they're they're all there. Um, and that's that's who's up there. Uh, what's meant by the devil or or Satan that the Bible talks about is just the aggregate of hell. It's it's another term for the aggregate of, uh, of hell. But there's no one there's no one master devil kind of thing. Uh, um, they're just individual evil spirits. In, in other words, uh, there aren't spirits uh, that would be the equivalent of what some people call the heavenly host or the principalities of, of, of evil spirits who are created only for that purpose. That, that uh, they're all, they would have been incarnated at some point on a planet and then uh, died and then they become angels or demons or whatever else you have up there or down there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's correct. And um, yeah, it's an interesting point of view because he describes angels as having astonishing what I could only call superpowers. He doesn't use that term, but but I think it's appropriate. Um uh, they they don't strike you as being just like you or me at the moment. <laughs> uh, and, and he talks about a kind of education and preparation for, for heaven and so on. So he even, I'm remembering all of a sudden that there are, there are just a few passages where he actually describes that uh, in addition to the fact that we physically die, and then find ourselves in the in the world of spirits. Really, our uh, transition from the world of spirits to heaven or hell is also a kind of death. It's as if who we were in that phase too, uh, almost like a what is it a pupa or a chrysalis and then a butterfly or probably have that in the wrong order, but you know a caterpillar and so on. Uh, that there are in a, in a sense three stages to this, and by the time you've reached a Angelhood, they they really are remarkable and appropriately called principalities and powers and so on. Um, and yet, uh, there are clues in the Bible. Uh, you may remember in the book of Revelation that there's an angel uh, and John bows down to the angel and the angel says, don't do that. I'm your brother. I'm your fellow. I'm the same as you, in effect. And that's it. There are a couple of stories like that. There are two in the book of Revelation and there are others. Um, there's a story of Manoah in the book of Judges where Manoah's wife sees an angel and then uh, he wants to see the angel. And so he follows her and eventually he gets to see the angel. And uh, he says to the angel, are you the man that my wife spoke to? And the angel says, yes, I am. Um, in other words, doesn't say, oh, no, I'm, I'm not human. <laughs> I'm something else again. Another point that people have made is that in the creation story in Genesis, uh, everything's created, but not not angels. You, you never see angels. What's created are animals and plants and human beings, the, the sun and the moon and so on. 
uh, no angels. But then all of a sudden, by then you start to have people dying uh, in the uh, as the course of the story goes. And then by I think chapter sixteen, you start to get angels showing up, and they, you know. So anyway, it's just interesting to to see little little hints in scripture um, the, for for this idea that and and of course they're depicted as people with knowledge you know they they know mary's pregnant or they and they speak in language and and so on so they they certainly seem seem human and in, in in the way that they interact with the figures in in the biblical story so well, as I read Swedenborg, I had this sense he described, uh, he uses the word, I think, or it's translated in the version I read, uh, which was an older version than yours. He uses the word man. He says they, they have the appearance of man, the angels, and, and uh, he, throughout, even at the highest levels. But then he goes on to say they, they can radiate. like they're, they're, It's almost as if they're human, they have the appearance of man, but they have this quality of, of luminescence or radiation of some sort. Yes, it's it's reminiscent of the transfiguration in the New Testament where Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray and and all of a sudden he's radiating light even his clothes are radiating light and and uh it seems similar in 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 my mind that uh yes these these angels um at part of what he says is the key to this is that in his experience and in interaction with angels they are actually very humble they're very powerful but they're very humble. There's a humility in their power that they believe that their power comes from God. It doesn't belong to them. They've seen themselves in 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 weak and you know pathetic circumstances or or whatever, and so they usually remember the distinction. There are times when the divine sphere comes over them where they kind of forget whether they're God or they aren't, you know, because they're in in the midst of it. But as soon as that that stops, they 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 know that that they're nothing. They have this is not their own power. This is just power they have from their close relationship with the divine. Um, but they're beautiful descriptions, and it's a and it's a great um, image. I think it's a a fun thing to think about striving for. You know, to become angelic or 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 to work work toward that. So I find inspiration from these works along those lines. When we spoke earlier, you also explained to me that many people were critical of Swedenborg's vision of heaven and hell because he made hell seem kind of palatable, like it it wasn't uh, such a nasty place actually. And and I gather that the the beings who go to hell go there of their own choice because that's where they feel the most comfortable. That's right. Yeah, the, yeah, both of those points I think were <laughs> uh, not helping the fire and brimstone preachers who who wanted to scare people uh, into living better lives. Um, uh, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said that uh, Swedenborg's devils have an easier time than those who work in the mines of Potosi um, in this world. <laughs> in other words, uh, conditions are worse for. For humans here, because in in the other world, um, they they do work. I don't think they enjoy their work. These are evil spirits in in hell, but they have have their weekend. They they um, have sexual relations. Uh, 
they're allowed to do a number of things as long as they don't harm others. The frustration comes in is that harming others is what they love the most. <laughs> so that's where the torment comes in. It's not that they're exposed to literal fire or extreme cold and, and that sort of thing, but but that the uh, frustration of not being able to do what they want. But really, it does sound, and he says that they, he, he makes an interesting point about what he calls the light of heaven, which is that um, there's a different light in, in hell. And even you were talking about the different communities before. He also says that the different communities have different qualities of light in them, in, in, in heaven and in hell. Uh, so in the light of heaven, things appear as they truly are. Uh, so if someone's heart or mind or soul are, are monstrous, sometimes we describe people who have done terrible things uh, as monsters. Uh, Swedenborg says in the light of heaven, you would literally see something monstrous, but that light is not operative in hell most of the time. People just look look normal to each other. They, you know, they're normal people interacting with each other and and the, the, there's lots of push me, pull you sort of politics and, you know, uh, and uh, people mistreating each other, but it's controlled where they can only mistreat each other if it's, if the punishment fits the crime. They can't go any farther uh, than, than, than what is deserved. And, and um, uh, so taken all around and they're allowed to enjoy their delights as long as they don't harm others. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it, his, uh, his hell was too nice for, for some of his contemporaries. At the same time, I gather that uh, in Swedenborg's writings, you still have uh, a, a classic theme that comes across in many different religious traditions, which is sort of the war between good and evil. And like the, that every human uh, mind is a battlefield. Yes, this is very, very true. I, I spoke a little bit before about the equilibrium between heaven and hell. And this uh, he describes in quite vivid terms. And I think he had experienced this him, himself, what he calls these, um, what the Bible might call temptations. But it's not like you're tempted to eat chocolate or something. It's uh, better. We've often translated that as spiritual crises or trials where um, two forces are battling in yourself. Uh, actually, where you see this the most clearly in, in Scripture is in um, Paul's epistle to the Romans. In chapter 7, he talks about a you know war going on in his members and, and that there's two of him. You know, what he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, he does. And, and, uh, uh, and I think this is a picture of what we go through psychologically sometimes where I mean, isn't it typical at the beginning of the year that you make a New Year's resolution uh, and then you, you decide to do something, but there's something else in you that doesn't want to do it and that will fight you on it. And you'll find yourself in a battle between between these things. That's sort of a mundane example. But but um, sometimes when something um, I, I've had the experience a number of times where I I love two things and then find out that they're at odds with each other. And I have to choose, you know, which, which do I love more? And, and it's 
it's a it's a battle and and um and Swedenborg says that there are angels and evil spirits through the medium of beings in this world of spirits in between them uh that are very active in this that's actually who is uh fighting in us but we have this interesting point of choice where we can kind of strap on our armor and fight for one side or the other <laughs> and and um and that's been useful to me sometimes to think about that that it's sort of the like the native american saying that you which wolf do you feed you know wanting to put the emphasis on 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 the side that you that you want to win uh so it becomes a very it's very intimately tied to what goes on in our psychology and some things that we may simply think is a is an attack of conscience or uh just uh feeling uncomfortable about your life or or feeling tormented about something you said that you wish you hadn't said or whatever form it might take but but there's more going on i think he was very surprised when he got to the other side and saw that there's a lot more going on with those interactions there's a whole spiritual underpinning uh, uh that, that's just taking place on the soil of your consciousness well it suggests to me that what he's saying is that here uh, we are alive on the planet earth uh, but our thoughts are uh, coming to us from uh, these spiritual realms, from heaven and hell, when we have a, a thought in one direction or the other, I think you describe it as our external being, our worldly self that wants to uh, uh, enjoy the, the acquisition of material goods and power and uh, the like, as opposed to our inner self, which probably, uh, I would say, desires a, a sense of uh, closer to God, purity, and uh, and love, and that these uh, forces are spiritual forces at war within our psyche. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Swedenborg uh, says exactly what you said there, that there's um, uh, what he sometimes calls an inner self and an outer self, uh, and you'll have one uh, one force pushing one way in the inner self and another force reacting in, in the outer self. Uh, and um, he also says that if you could see what goes into one single thought, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I My sense is that our world doesn't really know what thinking is. It, it certainly thinks that computers could do it, whatever it is, and, and might take over at any time. Uh, what Swedenborg says is involved in one thought. He says there are myriads of spirits involved in one one thought that you have. It's uh, uh, there's much more to it than you realize. And so, and thought is kind of mystical, isn't it? Because you can be struggling with something uh, and trying to find a way, you know, wondering what to do about a situation, um, and then. Uh, Maybe you just take a nap and all of a sudden it pops into your mind, whole and entire. You didn't do anything. You know, you were trying and trying and trying, couldn't come up with a thought. And all of a sudden, boom, you're handed one. 
just, just like you didn't do anything. It was instant. One second, you're not thinking. And the next second, you go, oh, well, of course. Of course. Well, what is that? What just happened there? Uh, really, this was, although Swedenborg was a scientist in his earlier life and uh, became um, uh, focused on these spiritual topics and writing works about the Bible and the afterlife and so on, uh, this interest in what we would now call psychology, and that term was around then, but it was in its infancy. Um, but he was really, uh, you know, way ahead of Jung and Freud and so on, um, in terms of being very interested in what is going on. There, there's a draft. He wrote a letter to uh, his brother-in-law at one point when he was in his early 20s, saying, I've written a whole number of things, and he lists what they are. The, these drafts no longer survive. And one of them's titled A Method of Analyzing Thoughts and Feelings when he was 22 or something, you know. So he was very interested in what is going on in our inner space when we have these mysterious thoughts and feelings. When he was going through his spiritual awakening, he describes tremendous emotional turmoil and upheaval, even um, his mind splitting into two two sets of thoughts and they disagree with each other and um, some, you know, all of a sudden being overcome and weeping and, and his body shuddering and so on. Uh, so it, it was a very emotional thing for him to go through this awakening. And a lot of what he discovered was really the mechanism. And this is something that that interests me a great deal is, is how did this have an effect on our psychology? Because this is where we all we all live. We wake wake up in the morning and we have thoughts and feelings, and it's really a central part of what we are and 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 what we're doing. And and what's the mechanism behind that? This great mystery of how you feel a feeling or how you think a thought, and what happens as a result, and how that manifests into the world or it doesn't, and so on. They're they're very interesting things. Of course, he went beyond just psychology uh, to the extent that he's saying that uh, these are in effect, uh, I think he would use a term similar to supernatural forces that are acting upon us. Yes, that's right. He believes that the uh, world of the afterlife is a completely separate realm from the physical and the only relationship between the two, you know, people had often had the idea that angels are up in the stars or they're in the heavens somewhere in, in the physical universe. Uh, he said, no, no, it's a completely separate realm, but we are interesting creatures because we inhabit both worlds. He says that our spirit already lives in that world. We just most of the time, and most of us don't have our spiritual senses turned on, you know, our, our, our feed comes from our physical senses most of the time. Uh, and that's why dreaming and, and, and things like that are interesting where there's a time where these other signals can, can leak through sometimes. And some people have a very thin, thin veil and it leaks through all the time. Um, but uh, that realm is very, very present with us. He uses this analogy at one point that people think of the spiritual or the afterlife as being very remote and very, very distant, like some bird of paradise in some faraway country. And he says, well, it is like a bird of paradise, but so close to you, 
almost brushing your eye with its feathers, wanting to be seen. Uh, that's an interesting image, <laughs> strange image. But uh, yes, it, it's very, the supernatural is very active, very interested in us, in what we're going through. Um, very focused. Uh, it sounds like, uh, as far as I could tell, that every angel is assigned some people on whatever planet, but people kind of in their in their their folder or whatever you'd call it, they're they're assigned to us in some sense, and and uh, I think they change over time. Although he doesn't talk about that much, but but uh, the the that's a that's a big focus for them in that world because he believes that the it's like this world is like a foundation that that world stands on uh so the two are very important so when things are bad in our world that has an effect uh, on on the other world um he says so very intriguing well, one of his primary concepts, I gather, is the notion of correspondences, that for everything in this world, there's something corresponding in the other worlds. That's right. Uh, there had been a, a concept uh, for a long time that, oh, this plant is ruled by the moon or this, you know, there's, there's some connection between these things. But his idea of correspondences is much more of a blanket than that, that every single thing, uh, everything in nature has a correspondence. It's all sustained from the spiritual world. The spiritual world is more real than this world. And uh, there's a complete, he doesn't call it a replica, but I've heard it called a replica. It's not a bad way to say it, of this world in that world for the sake of what's sustaining what goes on here. He says that plants would not blossom trees with animals would not re reproduce nothing would happen in this world were it not for the presence of the spiritual world in this world in in some sense so this correspondence is something that he says that the ancient people on this planet he he says that the earliest people on the planet were in a much better uh, holier more spiritual state and more connected with the spiritual world than the human race became over time. And uh, there's been some something of a, a decline that's gone on over time. And that uh, these correspondences were a major subject of study in that early time. I, I was interested in the video on your website that talked about a time in the future when maybe universities and so on will will study the the paranormal to a greater degree than than they do now and it does seem to be happening more and more over time and i think swedenborg would agree with that that goal that uh it used to be that correspondences uh, was a major it was the most important field of study was how does this world relate to the spiritual world what does this flower or this fruit you know tell you uh, about these things that that are otherwise uh, unseen or, or vague to us that are in the spiritual world. And I would apply that. This is just me talking now, but human inventions uh, would not work. You know, the a car, a computer wouldn't work if it didn't embody correspondences. The kind of trial and error that happened to get it to work uh, was to 
get the correspondences right in effect because that's how the universe works that's how electricity works and and everything and um so i think it's an absolutely blanket thing every single thing in this world has a correspondence and can tell you uh something about that other world and for some reason i find that concept very satisfying well, I gather that ultimately the message he seems to be saying is that all of heaven and all of hell are actually already within us. Yes, we are truly, as the ancients said, a microcosm, meaning a miniature world. And we have all of that within us. I think it's why the human experience is so complex I don't know how you feel, but sometimes when I just listen to the thoughts running through my head day and night, or I, I get up in the night and some song is playing in my head over and over, uh, what is going on? What is this experience? And uh, sometimes when I've tried to look at myself and examine what's going on with my spirit, I realize I have some parts of myself that are very bold, some parts that are very anxious. Uh, you know, some parts that care about this, some other parts that don't care about that at all. And, and uh, Walt Whitman, who, who was somebody who read Swedenborg, said, uh, I contain multitudes. And, and I think that's, that's true. Uh, the complexity of what goes on within us, the, the more you, you look, the more you realize this is not just kind of a lump of clay that occasionally pipes up and says something. <laughs> There's a lot going on with us. Um, that, that's really true. Tell me if I understand this correctly. We talked earlier about this battle, the war in heaven, so to speak, or, or the battle between, the, uh, at the human level, the outer self and the inner self. And uh, I, I'm under the impression that in all three levels of heaven and three levels of hell, there's still that distinction between the inner being and the outer being. Ah, very good point. Yes, very good point. Uh, he says that um, within uh, every community of heaven or hell, there is uh, an inner level and there's an outer level. Uh, there is also what he calls uh, the equivalent of an of a east, a south, a west, and a north. Um, uh, whether it's a small community or a large community, um, it has these attributes. Um, and and we ourselves, you might think that well, we have an inner self and an outer self, and so I guess our outer self is our flesh. And then we die, and then we're just an inner self in the other world. He said, "Oh no, no, no! You're still multi-layered after death. Uh, th th there, there are multiple layers to us. That's that's part of what's built in. And something else that that brings to mind is uh, that affected me a great deal uh, when I was editing Heaven and Hell was that um, this idea of." humanity. He, he says that all of heaven is in the human form. But if you zeroed in on just one layer of heaven, that wouldn't be partial. That would be also in a complete human form, whatever exactly he means by that. And if you zoomed in on one community, that too would be in a whole human form. And if you zoom in on one angel or, or one, one smaller group or 
or or a couple uh that that would be in the human form and then he takes his lens even farther he says i know you probably won't believe this or understand what i'm saying but i it's the truth that i need to say it that every one of your thoughts and feelings is in a complete human form every thought and feeling that you have and that's a that's a mystical statement but there's uh what meant so much to me about that was that I used to be afflicted by this thought of a kind of existential worthlessness. In other words, a feeling that, well, I'm only one of billions of people on this planet. So if you had to express that as a decimal, it would just round down to zero. And if you had to say, well, the, the amount of time that I was alive on this earth was nothing compared to all the all the time of this planet. And you throw in other planets or the vast universe. I mean, it all rounds down to zero. And and that had troubled me for some reason. I mean, I, mean, I was really plagued by that, that thought of rounding down, like it's all sort of meaningless. And instead, reading this, realizing that, wow, no, no, it rounds up. It rounds up to one. You could write a whole history of just this house or just this one person. There's a complete universe. Uh, Swedenborg also says that every single individual God considers to be the center of the universe. I know some people act like <laughs> that's how they feel and so on, but it's a beautiful teaching too, uh, that uh, the divine is able to view what it's like for each of us as, as the center. So in some sense, each of us is the whole point of this whole massive thing. We don't round down to zero. We round up and we're in that human form. So each person, Swedenborg says, in heaven is a miniature heaven. They're not a part of it. They're a whole heaven. You just put them together with other heavens and that makes even a more complex heaven. But there's a wholeness in, in his vision that was very meaningful to me. It sounds like uh, very much what many modern writers are talking about when they describe the holographic universe or uh, fractal geometry, how the fractal pattern will repeat itself infinitely. It's wonderful that that geometry came along because Swedenborg was writing hundreds of years before it, and yet it's really a great way to summarize what he's saying. And I, before that mathematics, uh, what could we grasp of how much it's true that the small emulates the large and, and repeats these patterns and that's built into the shapes of mountains and coastlines and so on? Well, Jonathan Rose, this has been a fabulous discussion, very eye-opening, and uh, I hope it gives our viewers a new appreciation for Swedenborg's visions. Uh, and also, I uh, hope to have more discussions with you because uh, Swedenborg's writings are vast. He's a very unique figure in, in history, and you are one of the foremost living experts on this, uh, this work. So I would welcome you back on New Thinking Aloud over and over again. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor. It's an honor to have this conversation with you. And uh, you're, you're very knowledgeable about this and many other things. So it's an extreme pleasure to converse with you about these important things. So I thank you.
Well, thank you for being with me today, Jonathan. And for those of you who are watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.